I was just reading a thing. Um, I forget. Uh, but like there's an anecdote in it that was part of the, the larger point the author was making, but he was talking about, um, fluency and like the moment he became fluent in Italian, like he was like, he, he did four years of Italian in high school and, and stuff, and then was continuing to study it in college and then went and studied abroad in Rome um, and was able to maintain conversations in Italian and everything and convey his meaning and understand everything everybody was saying. But like the whole time he was noting that he would set up the translations in English before conveying it in Italian. And so mm-hmm. there was this extra like burden and, and like point of uh, a medium in there. But then right. um, there was a point at which he woke up one morning and realized he had had an entire dream in Uh. Italian and like understood everything. And like from that moment on, he wasn't doing the translation anymore. He Mm. was just speaking Italian without thinking about it any more than he would think about speaking in English. And that's like not the first time I've heard of this phenomenon. I've heard of this like so many times. I want to know how much has been written about this phenomenon or or studied about it that like fluency like there's a a point of transition into fluency like you cross that last bridge yeah in a dream in whatever the target language is um it's it's become kind of just like a a uh canard is the wrong word but just like a thing like Mm -hmm. i actually just saw this the other day was like a some reddit thread I forget what the original context was, but it was like a bunch of people who had learned second languages like later in life, like ones they weren't raised with or whatever. And mm-hmm. everyone was kind of comparing notes about like the first time they had dreamed in that language and how triumphant they felt about it. Sure. Um, so it has become a thing like studies mm-hmm. of it or, or, you know, scholarship on it would definitely be really interesting. Like, I don't know. Right. I don't know if if there's theory about what the mechanism is or or you know why it why that's the thing but yeah it's definitely yeah. interesting. Like my first hypothesis in that is that like that might say something about the the science of dreams in general that right. it is something to do with like your brain processing information and like moving stuff into long-term memory or other areas of the brain or it's like your brain resetting yeah. and hardwiring and all that i don't know yeah hardwiring especially Mm -hmm. would be yeah would would definitely be in there somewhere uh in as much as like hardwiring is an imperfect metaphor in the sense that right (laughs) the brain metaphor re-hardwires itself all the time and often quite fluidly but yeah there's definitely like a a threshold that you probably cross there where the brain is like okay this is part of Instead of this being like a thing we've studied or a thing we know from the mm-hmm. outside, this is just part of us now. Right, it's and I wonder too are, if who I am, like it, it, in dreams, also especially like really vivid ones. If it's like the sort of thing that your brain can allow you to take risks that you wouldn't in normal daily life like your brain is is telling you don't cross that don't go there because it's too risky but in your dreams you're allowed to um yeah and like it's an exercise for your brain in that way that yeah that seems that seems very valid from everything i've both known and thought about uh about dreams um i guess the other thing is like 
dream a dream state can be similar to like a hypnotic state which right brainwave wise like we can't identify what a hypnotic state is but it's somehow um and and arounds that like conscious filter where you you're speaking directly to the the subconscious the underconscious um mm. because like i've known i've known more than one pe- person including like my mother who in either hypnosis or when just waking up from a dream can understand a foreign language that they know much more fluently than like they usually mm-hmm. can either understand or speak it mm-hmm. uh, that happened to me yeah <laughs> when i was studying uh just my first semester of german oh, sure. i was i was terribly sleep deprived and was waking up um and like the first thing I thought to to say was "Wie spät ist es?" Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> like, what time is it? But I asked it in German, right, without even thinking about it. So my brother was went through a phase in college where he was like uh, learning about hypnosis and and you know experimenting with hypnosis and like I've seen him do hypnosis on people and it's you know it's quite mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, uh. But so August, like August is pretty good in Spanish because he has that like kind of borderline eidetic memory where it's like, mm. you know, he just retains things really well. And like, mm-hmm. I've heard him translate Spanish before and, you know, he's pretty good in it. But like speaking it, he's always very hesitant in until sure. the one anecdote I know is that my brother put him under hypnosis and told him that he was a conquistador. And they were in that little fishbowl lounge uh, by the Viking village, the one where it's like, Uh you know, kind of a rectangle lounge. So Zeke told August that August was a conquistador and that the table on the other end uh, of the room was the the new world. And Mm. August like, you know, he woke him up and August was like instantly just like spewing fluent Spanish. And there were, like, enough people in the room who had studied Spanish to know he wasn't BSing. Like, this was real Spanish. And August <laughs> marched over uh, to this table and, like, got up on a couch, got up on the table, and just was like, uh, es la terra nueva. Um, <laughs> and, like, August, it was known, August would sometimes pop himself a little bit out of hypnosis and then go back in. And in this instance, he he conquered the table. He said, es, you know, es la terra nueva. And then looked down and said, no, es una mesa. No, es la terra nueva. <laughs> so, like, he popped himself out of the hypnosis, but he was still in the Spanish. Still in Spanish, yeah. Yeah. Which is just that's one good. of my favorite stories along those lines. I love it. I love it. Well, that's and that's kind of what I mean, too. Like... You're in in a dream state, hypnotic state, whatever. Like you're yeah. allowed to be out of your own way a little bit, right? Right. You know. Yeah. So. And there's there's lots uh, of like different versions of philosophical or not philosophical, but like psychological uh, yeah. analysis of like why that is or what's operating there. Mm-hmm. Some of them have to do with like social pressures, which is fascinating. It's like right putting you into hypnosis puts you into the state where you're deeply reluctant on like in an instinctive level to 
not fulfill it, the social expectations put on you. Right. It, it kind of weaponizes a new social contra- contract. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like a ver- but like a very specific social contract mm-hmm. that's like mm-hmm. it's 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 targeted. <laughs> yeah, it's targeted, and it's coming again up out of that like underconscious where you're the mm-hmm. the filter of your like normal social consciousness is is uh is gone around it's end arounded somehow mm-hmm. yeah right right yeah but how did this how does this relate to the book that we're discussing today absolutely <laughs> in no way uh <laughs> and this is your fault because you brought this up i think well i you know i actually think there might be something to it you know when we talk about dreams in general and i've only watched the first episode of the sandman series on netflix Uh, but i have read the entire book and i've listened to the first volume of the audiobook um for the sandman and so like there's a connection between dreams and fiction and such which is not only a neil gaiman invention um but the idea of getting out of your own way and like crossing boundaries and things that you're not going to do in real life and i think um in this book in particular there's some stuff there we can talk about but my name is michael lilienthal this is my host my host guest ethan bartlett and you're listening to michael and ethan in a room with scotch what is a host guest <laughs> i don't know also at what point am i supposed to like start this podcast in the last half hour of conversation that like led us yeah. up to this point if you just like create like a half hour fade in <laughs> to this point, just let it gradually come in that way. Figure that one out. That doesn't make any sense, but like, I guess that's my <laughs> burden to bear. To the the really fun stuff, Ethan. We're going to be drinking scotch yeah. uh, while we're discussing books, and we're not going to talk about the scotch. We're going to talk about the book uh, until the scotch except for just now, right now. Except for just now, right? And then, like yeah. in a couple hours, um, <laughs> or a couple weeks, depending on your or a couple time based perspective. How time works, yeah. Um, so we are drinking the Glen Levitt Nadra uh, edition. Uh, mine is the Oloroso matured single malt Scotch whiskey. Ethan, you do not have the Oloroso no. matured, but you do have. I just have lame first fill uh, white oak casks. I tried to get the lame. Oloroso, but didn't work out. Which is yeah, fine. Well, it's fine. It's fine. I'm not bitter. It's fine. <laughs> but is the Scotch? We'll discuss <laughs> later. <laughs> That's a joke you can make um, now and in two hours or two weeks, but not in between. Exactly. Um, speaking of two hours, your wife is no longer so far away from you, so have her come read the rules. Hey, wife, come read the rules. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. 
no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thanks, wife. (laughs) I don't know if that made sense. Eh, It made as much sense as it needed to. Right. Right. Lachaim. Schlancha. Now, I did say schlancha, which is like... Schlancha. The worst part of your salute and the worst part of my salute combined. (gasps) Right? (laughs) Excuse me. That's all I have to say about that, but... Oh, okay. I didn't know if you had a broader point to make other than, you know, you're just a horrible person. But I mean, wow. Yes. Okay. That's a yeah, so. that's really going through the throat right away, huh? Well, that's um all in uh character with the book we're discussing, right? Right? I mean See, I'm gonna I'm all about the segues here today. I'm just I'm not I'm I'm a dog with a bone. They're like gonna, not gonna, great gonna, segues, but they're like it. Segway. Very I'm, I'm just gonna grab it and I'm gonna shake it until it's dead. And I'm like a dog chasing cars. <laughs> Wouldn't know what to do with them if I caught him. <laughs> Thank you. That's my impression of the Joker. It's excellent. Uh, no notes from anyone will be accepted. <laughs> oh, I thought I thought it was the dude from The Big Lebowski. He doesn't say that line. What are you talking about? I don't know. I don't know. So, Ethan, what book are we discussing? I don't know anymore. I think it's The (laughs) Batman Returns. A real name of a real book and movie. I mean, there's probably a novelization. Uh, We're discussing The Sheriff of Babylon, which, Michael, you got the special edition, right? Uh, Or the deluxe edition? Uh, Okay, yeah, I have the exact same cover, but mine says deluxe edition below Babylon. Anyway, the only reason I ask this is because uh, at least my edition in the back has a collection of the covers of the uh, mm-hmm. um, individual issues that were released and maybe some like alternative covers. Mm-hmm. Um, Mine has that too. Yeah, well, I would like to point out that under 
cover sketches for issues number two to five. Um, two of the covers do say the Sheriff of Baghdad. Yes. Uh, so that's, I'm going to say, and this is not retconning based on me having noticed this recently upon rereading this book. This is a very real thing. That is why I called it the Sheriff of Baghdad at the end of, <laughs> I think, our last episode. Or, yeah. Uh, because the whole Baghdad Babylon, yeah. I mean, the other reason is that the whole Baghdad slash Babylon uh, uh, an analogy uh, is is big in these. But uh, what I'm saying is right. it's not my fault. I'm a victim. And uh, <laughs> if anyone's a bad guy, Michael is. So. <laughs> we're just gonna villainize who we need to exactly in order to achieve our political aims exactly um, wait is this you so trying yes, to do a is... segue <laughs> yes oh, okay uh, yes it is the sheriff of babylon by tom king art by mitch jared's i'm not sure if that's how you pronounce jared's or gerard's i uh, assume Jared's dreads. Um, yes. Uh, it is a graphic novel uh, collection of 12 issues. Um, Which is like... Of the... Uh, is like single runs. Published 2015, 2016. As like single yeah. runs go, 12 issues is like a decent size, right? Like... Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of... Like it's a full year. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like a lot of graphic novels that I encounter, you'll have... Sometimes as little as four issues, more often like mm-hmm. six to six to eight or nine, like ten or eleven issues is often a, a pretty decent sized one. Yeah. Now I have I, I can't say I know terribly much about the comic book industry in general yeah. or like how they intentionally market things. I've got my comic book collection, but I don't Yeah. I don't know the ins and outs of the I guess I say the this industry itself. Partly because like the main, or at least the introductory uh, uh, set of graphic novels that I'm familiar with is the first ten volumes of Sandman. Um, mm-hmm. You know, which is which is which... probably like a lot of people saying like, I know science fiction movies because I've seen the original Star Wars trilogy or something like. It's a pretty basic assertion, but um, the the point the point I'm making there is that I think the longest volume of the original like 10 volume run is like 10 issues long and it's like mm. a 75 volume original run there have been supplements and and so forth to sandman since then but like right. that was the original run so i guess 10 volumes being the longest or 10 issues rather being the longest volume in that i always sort of think of 10 a 10 issue volume as like a like a threshold for like what a a long one is in graphic novel terms. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how interesting this is or if I'll delete this entire discussion, but here we are. Sure. Well, no, I think there's something significant there because is this Tom King's first? No, it can't be his first work. I don't think it is because I think no. in some of the introductory stuff he kind of implies that he wrote some uh i want to say he implies that he wrote some other like superhero ones see i should i should have looked more into tom king i'll have a couple more notes on him as we go um but 
Yeah. Uh, be- before we get too far, I do want to remember to let our listeners take a moment to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't that already, in order to avoid spoilers. A great point. Um, yeah, do do that. Do that. Do it. Go. Yes. Okay. Now, welcome back. <laughs> in case you paused the podcast and and did that and didn't just keep listening um which is your choice you can but also welcome back uh, either so way, okay really. uh, i don't know why michael's being so exclusionary <laughs> about this i don't know because uh, i need i need to set up someone as as the fall guy <laughs> that's what i need um good work, good work. so tom king is uh one of the favorite comic book authors of a mutual friend of ours who goes by the name of Josh Wershke. Um, And so I reached out to Josh about his thoughts on Tom King, and he shared a a couple things that I think are are interesting and can can serve as a springboard to talk about Tom King a little bit here. Um, He he had not read The Sheriff of Babylon, but um, he said it's on his list. but Tom King and Mitch Jareds have done a number of collaborations in the comic book world. And uh, Josh Wershke, uh talked about how um, um, Tom King had been in the CIA and that brought a lot of interesting insights and perspective to his writing over a bunch of things. The Sheriff of Babylon seems to be the most direct right. in terms of that sort of influence <laughs> i mean not only the I, I influence think... of the cia but like where he was stationed when working for the cia mm-hmm. and just sort of yeah like, the most direct you i don't think tom king wants us to think of this as a biographical or autobiographical no, but right the closest but it's, thing it's hard not to see it as the closest thing to, to autobiographical yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah um or like memoirish yeah 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 uh in a way um but yeah so and that's that's something that's that's brought out but also um uh josh said i love that tom king takes b c and d list characters and gives them a modern twist and he gives some examples like mr miracle which is a tom king mitch jared's mm-hmm. uh um collaboration strange adventures is another one i think that they collaborate on vision tom king wrote i don't think mitch jared's is the artist for that and omega man and i know i know very little about that one um uh is omega man a green lantern uh adjacent one or am i thinking of um i i i don't know it's dc um I don't know anything really more about them because Omega is like the sign of, um, um, what's that villain? Not Thanos, the DC Thanos. Sure. <laughs> I know I've just alienated a bunch of DC fans. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, um, I have read Tom King's, uh, I believe the Omega men. I'm looking it up here in real time. A really great, just like audio friendly thing for me to do (laughs) yeah so uh, tom king's iteration of omega men is at least that one is green lantern uh adjacent adjacent like it's kind of in that uh universe of stories or whatever world of stories okay uh that sphere yeah and 
Yeah, okay, so um, Tom King's version essentially has uh, Kyle Rayner, the, uh, the Green Lantern, joining the Omega Men and sort of switching sides, hmm. essentially, huh. with... Uh, yeah, he... Um, so Green Lantern, I think, is captured by the Omega Men and... Uh, Hmm. uh sort of ends up joining i guess spoilers for uh uh this one but <laughs> sort of ends up joining them and like deciding that maybe their side of the war is sort of like uh more the side of of right and it's like interesting there's definitely metaphors for sort of the war on terror and um the right. modern era of warfare but it's like in no way is it as simple as like U.S. analogs good, terrorist analogs bad, but it's also not as simple as like switching sides and like terrorist analogs good, U.S. analogs bad. Like there's a lot of nuance it's, in it, and it's right. It's more embracing the gray area yeah. and the yeah the nuance, the the um, subtle intricacies. Yeah. And details, yeah, which which is very similar to Sheriff of Babylon, also. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, something else before we get into Sheriff of Babylon proper too that I wanted to to mention as a as a marker for for this talking about BC and D list characters. Yeah. Um, it was in a, a conversation with Josh also, who knows a lot more about comic books and the comic book industry than I do. Right. Um, talking about how new comic book writers will be given a shot basically with bcd list characters like they get a book assigned for them first it's like okay see if you can because if you mess this up you're not going to do too much damage um so that's like your trial run so to speak and i think that's more or less what um sandman was when neil gaiman got it too like um he sandman was kind of a c or d list yeah dc character and then like neil gaiman he was given the reins to do what he wanted with it yeah neil gaiman i think had a little bit more control over that in the sense that sure an editor called him and said like hey we'd love for you to do a series and i think he kind of was like well sandman and they were like sure we don't care about Sandman." so it was like basically the same dynamic (laughs) that you've just said but a little bit more neil gaiman kind of understanding how those reins of power worked and kind of you know jockeying sure. them for himself as it were right right um yeah well i i i think um yeah you know with with a little bit of different nuance there i think we see a similar sort of trajectory for tom king in those terms that he did such a stupendous job with those bc d string characters that um he rocketed and has been um in control of batman for a while you know and um like i mean when you think about dc's popular characters or (laughs) a-list characters batman is number one or or possibly two Mm. but there's a case that he's these days i think he's number one (laughs) there may have been a long time where he'd be number two to superman but i think at this point like Superman's yeah. not obsolete, but Batman, I think, probably since the Nolan films, probably Batman is like, at least in the popular consciousness, if you're not talking about like specifically the comic book community exclusively. Right. That's that's my right. perception anyway. I could be wrong. 
Sure. Um, but then, so I, I'm, I'm wondering about this too, and I, I didn't look at the timeline or anything, but um, I could see this book functioning one of two ways. This could be the sort of thing that it's just another sort of in the same vein of BCD string books that like, okay, you can do this because you're not going to wreck anything else. Or what I think is probably more likely at this point is that he was showing how great a writer he was. So he got to do a pet project. Um, And that's what I've always gotten the impression Um, so much more personal and, yeah, I've always gotten the impression that this was yeah. more along the lines of, like, a pet project. Like, he'd proven himself enough to be handed, like, a, okay, you can do what you want. Don't mess this up either, but, like, you know, go ahead. Like, we mm-hmm. trust you enough to, to give you a shot. Uh, I don't have any specific proof or, you know, anything like that for that uh, perception, but that's the perception I have for sure. Right. Right. Um, well, and, and here's where I, I want to touch on something that it makes the whole introductory stuff that we were talking about earlier make <laughs> a little more relevant. Sure. Um, and that's that, uh, you know, the, the idea that this is memoir-ish, um, like the, the time and the place match up. Uh, identically with his own experience in um, serving in the CIA in Baghdad. He was uh, in Iraq for five months in 2004. And this book takes place in Baghdad in February of 2004. That's right. um, like the the third panel in, right. in the book says February 2004 right after the second panel says Baghdad Iraq. and then the third to the last panel uh, <clears throat> says April 2004 and that's yep. in the essentially in the uh, order of an epilogue meaning that this whole story takes place in less than five months in 2004 right right so like he's encapsulated his experience here or he's distilled some of his experience yeah. for an audience again i'd be hesitant here. about like i know we've basically said this disclaimer already but about drawing too much yep. of an inference because uh in his introduction uh king is very specific to point out that like because he was with the cia he can't talk about anything that he actually directly experienced and that's part of why he recasts mm-hmm. this as a crime story sort of a a crime detective uh out on a slight limb to say noir story that i will defend whenever you uh call me out on that the use of that word well the washington post calls it war noir for the 21st century. okay so like yes i it was not an original take but like uh i was kind (laughs) of trying to like dangle some uh bait in front of you and whether you take it you know we, I, I would like to, to maybe talk about that a little bit, um, but um, and and I think you're it's it's absolutely the other true. the other um, very brief point I was going to make yeah. is that Mitch Gerads in his afterward also points out mm. that Tom King points out any time that someone says he was in <laughs> Iraq, he Tom King's first move is to point out that like he was there way for way less time than a lot of other people. Like, 
I, I laughed out loud when I read that because sure. in Tom King's introduction, the last sentence is needless to say a lot of people right. served a lot longer. Yeah. Last paragraph, the first paragraph, the last sentence of the first paragraph. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, okay, I, I do want to point out some other things about the introduction there. Um, that uh, it's the third paragraph in his introduction. He says, in terms of goals, I wanted to write something that wasn't political and didn't feel like homework, that wasn't about whether it was good or bad to be there. I just wanted to write about what it was actually what it was like actually to be there then for those few months when we thought we'd won and we hadn't when the heat of the summer was starting to come on so strong. Um, and then like he goes on with some other really interesting things, yeah. but I don't want to spend all of our time on the introduction. Like it's, it's not that that's it's not a, a Michael and Ethan tradition. Well worth our time to read that introduction. Um, but there, so I think there is something to be said about it being somewhat autobiographical. Yeah. I think he explicitly states that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just I, I don't be... know if you can find Tom King specifically in any character, right? Um, but Tom King's experience is in yeah the experiences of these. Characters. I just wanted to reemphasize that in terms of like, I think what yeah. we can assume is that the settings, um, the types of people, the types of situations are probably right. things he encountered. But like, I just want to be very hesitant about well, reading too much into like the specific events of the plot um right and i think there's something there too that like the uh, in the realism of the story um that there are just some occasions some things that happen some some scenes that are even put and even just the way the art displays it um we can talk more about that too um that it's just like that you didn't make this up right. this is real this happened you're you're communicating something that actually happened the one um i'm trying to find it as i'm scrambling through here i don't even remember which um which chapter it's in but uh christopher um the main american character uh like is meets this little iraqi boy mm -hmm. um who's selling him something oh there it is um it's page 88 yeah <laughs> which is just four panels um going down it, well it starts even on page 87 with the nine panels in here and he's meeting this little boy who's trying to sell him all of these different right. things and just that whole interaction with this boy i want you didn't make this right. up this happened this this is a real thing right and maybe it's truncated or um Dis uh, censored even distilled maybe but, but distilled yeah yeah um, and i think there's i i to sort of wobble to the other end of the spectrum from the the one i yeah. just planted my flag on i think there is also a an element there of like tom king having made these protests and having made it clear that like you know he's not violating any mm -hmm. secrecy things or or whatever yep. <laughs> it's like stuff we pick up intuitively that he probably uh you know did experience or experienced a very close version of um like that's now fine like i i yep. don't disbelieve you but like you have no proof of that other than intuition and that's sort of like right where a story like this from an author like this leaves us where he's just saying yeah yep. you know he's he's explicitly stated no like this is fiction it's based on reality but it is fiction and then it just leaves us to kind of suss out or intuit or interpret like what things from that how fictional any any given thing is um 
Yeah. And that's, you know, it's both both a very ambiguous place to be, but a very interesting place as well, because we want to be careful, I think, about discounting any of the more fantastic things, but we also want to be careful about, like, assuming any of the more mundane things are directly true versus, you know, assuming that they're distilled or analogs or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I agree with you about that yeah. specific encounter, especially just like it feels very real. It feels like if you were if you were an American author who had read a bunch of things about Baghdad in 2004 and you were like making up incidents even cl- based very closely on reality. I don't know that this is an incident you would put in like your right. your uh Again, not to violate my own principles, but potentially I... your avatar character of of a uh, Christopher, like <laughs> he he first pulls a gun on a boy and then he flips the boy off, and like just makes the boy think that he wants yep. his uh dirty magazines and then walks away from it. Like that doesn't make you look good, but like it is, it feels very real for sure. Yes, and. It's it not only real, but part of part of what makes it feel real, I think, too, is that it's so funny. Right. And it's so like stressful. Yeah. And like because I mean, there are guns involved. Right. So that's like half the stress that you see here. Um, and there's the language barrier and um, the misunderstandings. And there's all this other tension about being in this war zone. Um so like it's it's so very stressful and the humor is there that almost immediately diffuses all of the stress right. um but like the humor that like is almost a defense mechanism against the stress and yeah. against the potential for violence yeah yeah like all of that is kind of in right. there and, and it's not neatly delineated or separated out um yeah Right, but you also know in this book that like you're not safe from <laughs> um, the <sighs> tragedy and violence mm. and and st- the the very first panel is a man with his brains right. splattered on the floor. Yeah, it really it does right? set the tone. And, and the, the 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 first words in the book, the first words in the book are a quotation from you find out later it's a soldier, but like in that very first panel which is gruesome to look right. at. There's there are flies right. <laughs> buzzing around this man's right. brains. Um, and the first words, this quotation says, what are we supposed to right. do with this? And that encapsulates so much of the theme of this book. Yeah. Right there in that first panel. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it is, it's, there's a mess, it's gruesome, it's horrific to look at, but you can't look away. But what, what are, are we supposed, supposed to, to do, do with this, is the whole... Yeah. Um, which... What are we supposed to do with this? Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, which in some ways, and like, I'm gonna talk about film noir, you're not gonna stop me. Um. No, I, I encourage you, please. Excuse me, because like, a, there's so much in in this whole graphic novel that like has its antecedents in film noir, and it's fascinating to me how a film genre that most critics would say uh, came into its own 
after World War II. There's like some people say it came into its own just before World War II, but like most of the classic films and most of like the theory about it have to do with that immediately post World War II era. Um, that's you know, uh, fifty eight years if I'm doing math correctly before February two thousand four, um, and whatever like 65 plus years before this book comes out um the tropes and like the the analogs to film noir mm -hmm. throughout this book are incredibly like specific in some ways and incredibly but also incredibly pertinent to the the story that tom king is telling um mm -hmm. and it, it's all focused in that first panel of a. Uh, you know, a, a guy with his brain splattered on the ground and, and uh, someone saying, what are we supposed to do with this? Um, and I and I say this because, like, plot-wise, structure-wise, character-wise, all of these things are very film noir. Um, mm. The Chris, Christopher, right, is the, the main character. Mm -hmm. um, yep. he's He's a classic film noir hero in the sense that, like, he is unattacked, like, he's not married, he's not, uh, mm -hmm. he's even, like, the plot, the, the, the writing goes out of the way to detach him from, like, any too specific of a commitment to, like, a governmental organization or agency, like, he's kind of been thrown into the situation right. and s told, hey, train these Iraqi police, like, it's unclear multiple times, mm -hmm who or 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 like what mandate he's under um and even this first mm -hmm. issue the the horrifying uh, uh situation of the first like 10 pages or so he's very cowboyish and then that's uh uh supported in um a later page that i marked page 68 um where he's talking to uh Sophia or so or Sophia mm -hmm. uh which is a important distinction we'll get into mm -hmm. um in the last yep. panel page 68 uh she says all Americans are cowboys if we were not why would we be here which we'll have to get into at some point her identity her um uh you know sort of dual or treble or quadruple uh, identity um because her saying her using the uh the pronoun we is something we could analyze forever yep. um but what i'm pointing out is her almost toss-off line all americans are cowboys because in the annals of mm -hmm. film criticism you have a direct descent a, a direct like ancestral descent from the cowboy of the western genre to the detective of the noir genre um that i'm now tracing mm. here through to sort of the cop of uh of the sheriff of baghdad or the sheriff of the sheriff of baghdad and again that goes back to that western thing but in analyzing the right. um noir detective a lot of critics have detected like uh, excuse the the double use of detect there but um <laughs> A lot of critics basically say see the uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart character in the Maltese Falcon or the Humphrey Bogart character in 
the big sleep or various other of sort of the noir detective characters as like the modern industrial urban descendant of the cowboy in the sense that they're someone who is often armed is often attractive to the opposite sex is often uh sort of has a morality of their own but it's not inherently the like bourgeois morality of the world around them um all of these things can be said about christopher mm -hmm. uh and that's let alone the femme fatale character that uh sophia slash sophia is um and i don't know if i'm pronouncing sophia correctly like in in, in uh emphasis terms but um there's definitely her dual naming but the idea that you have a an attractive female character who is certainly attracted to the main detective slash sheriff character um but whose loyalty is suspect and questionable like that's very much a trope of the film noir genre um and furthermore right. just the intricacies of the plot the maze-like structure of the plot where at every turning you have questioned loyalties and questioned motives and you know all of these things like that's very film noir all by itself like the film the big sleep is one of the the lodestones of the film noir genre and basically every critic who has ever talked about the big sleep has described its plot as indescribable like you can't follow the plot of the big sleep you can't understand everything that's going on in it you just kind of like settle in for the ride and sort of go with that it's much more about vibes than about like understanding the whole plot and uh, the big sleep is just one like very obvious and well-known uh example of that in film noir um the seventh victim is another one that comes to mind that is arguably film noir and there's a bunch of others so uh the reason often given for all of this is that film noir is a genre that comes out of the aftermath of world war ii because world war ii in america in american psyche and perception is this very black and white very like we know who the bad guys are we went and defeated them you know it's this very cowboys versus outlaws story it's this very uh uh, cut and dried thing the undercurrent during this and the thing that comes out immediately after the war and uh, into the 50s and 60s with the development of postmodernism and so forth is like the problematizing of all of that the problematizing of the idea that good guys and bad guys are that cut and dried um you know after world war ii uh you have the nuremberg trials and you have some some gestures at uh uh bringing nazis to justice but like mm -hmm. so many of the nazis and so many of the other people either escaped or integrated into american society you talk about operation paperclip where uh multiple nazi scientists were set up as american citizens and you know integrated into american mm -hmm. society the same person who uh uh created the v2 rocket was um integrally involved with the u.s going to the moon and sort of the immediate scrambling of the idea of like 
good versus evil, who is who is good, who is evil. Like that's the sort of psychological analysis of why the film noir genre um, spoke to so many people. The idea that uh, uh, you have sort of these individuals and and these people who have a morality, but um, it's almost their own morality, sort of against systems and against mm-hmm. evil that is like not showing its face so much as hiding. Um, there's a lot of connections mm-hmm. there. And both I've, I've read this book twice, uh, this graphic novel. Um, and both times the parallel occurred to me between, you know, with film noir, but also the parallel occurred to me between the situation of America in the, the late forties and into the fifties with America in 2004 and with America in yeah. 2015, 2016, uh, when this graphic novel was mm-hmm. coming out. And the idea that in the 9-11 attacks, it felt like we had a clear bad guy, right? Like, it felt like, you right. know, like the, these these horrific events, like, you can pin them to an organization and a group, uh, and mm-hmm. you go after that group, right? Um well, the invasion of Iraq problematized that to some extent, especially the the more in retrospect we look at it and uh, the more that we learn that, like, the justification for that invasion was, mm, I don't want to get too political, but kind of made up, kind of not very well supported with actual facts. <laughs> I don't think that's super controversial to say. Um, as well as even with the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan, the fact that like the U.S. in the 1980s essentially created and armed the Taliban and made them the force that they were that eventually perpetrated the 9/11 attacks. Like without us arming the Taliban to try to create a quagmire for the Soviet Union in the 1980s, uh, the Taliban ne- Taliban rather never would have gotten as powerful as it was to be able to perpetrate the 9-11 attacks and involve the U.S. military in the quagmire that it did, you know, in the early parts and also recent parts of the 21st century. So this is hopefully not too long-winded, but a long-winded way of saying the, the psyche that produced the film noir genre that this comic book uh, or graphic novel draws on and uh, the psyche that this graphic novel sort of is birthed into have a lot of really interesting parallels, I think. Mm-hmm. I think, yes, you're on to something there. And, um, you know, when you think about other iterations of the noir genre, um, they are almost the same sort of responsive things um, in terms of timeline. Like the one that's coming to mind is yeah. Blade Runner, um, which, you know, is is in the 80s, which is coming out of this whole... It's almost a, a more ambiguous than, like, World War Two sort of thing. But, like, it, it is the same sort of responsive... Um, like this should be black and white, but it's it's yeah. maybe not. You could analyze um, Blade Runner among other and, things as very much a response to the Vietnam War. 
Um, yeah. Which mm-hmm. is, yeah, a whole set of uh, even more ambiguous ambiguities than uh, anything we've mentioned yep. so far. Right. But I think, you know, this, this I, I, I don't want to read a, a political sort of statement into the book but i think considering tom king told you not get to across already. some of the you're right <laughs> he told me not to so all right i'll listen to you tom <laughs> king um uh, <laughs> but like the, there there are certainly um analogies to draw within events in the book even in a micro sort of sphere uh you've got the one guy that christopher is talking to who's is is he ever named is his yeah he's named he has a name right um is his organization ever named um bob he calls himself bob which seems like a (laughs) not real thing it's like yeah you can call me bob um but this guy um and we find out that um he's responsible for uh, the death of the guy that Christopher's been right. looking for the entire book. Um, and he, he comes out with this story uh, about why it happened and uh, all of this. And it, and it is just almost the same story, but in a, a smaller sphere uh, to like America's relationship with the Taliban. Like I created this character and then needed to get rid right. of him. <laughs> um or and it's even less uh clear than that too it's it's it the 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 reason for um ultimately having him killed seems very very tissue paper thin um but it's which which makes you know as far as who's the villain in the story um you know which which is around and around and around um bob might be the clearest case for that because then you've got um uh this other guy uh abu right Rahim, yeah who's set up name. as the villain um right he's set up as the villain and like when he shows up at the end of part nine or or whatever like it it seems like all right here's the showdown and then it yes. fizzles in like yeah. a beautiful way which is interesting <laughs> just going back to talking about just like how many issues are in the series and and so forth um in the sense that like if you didn't previously know how many issues were in the series that confrontation with abu rahim seems like it's the climax when really it's like Mm -hmm. the flip into the third act just to put it in like screenplay terms yep um and often that flip into the third act involves like some i think sometimes it's called like a false climax or it's like a confrontation but like an unsatisfactory confrontation Mm. where you have a fight but like there's no clear winner but like that changes things and like sure it's interesting to me i I don't know it's just interesting like clearly structurally you're kind of meant to be thinking of both of those things um both like a a final ish confrontation but also a um as it becomes clear that there's more to the story and more to what's going on there like like you said it fizzles mm-hmm. in the most magnificent way um yeah. <laughs> i i can't 
Like, he comes in, he comes in with a bomb strapped to his chest, and the most wonderful thing is that yeah, and then they talk for thirty six pages, right? basically. Like, yeah, and it, the I I don't know, I don't know how Tom King did, <laughs> but he did it. To um, do that, and and he does a lot of things to like do that, that but too. also for it to be. Um, what, still not unsatisfactory because like you can do that and then claim afterwards like oh i was doing an anticlimax on purpose but like somehow this still works in a way that like not to uh kick a an already downed horse but in a way that like the climax of uh the house on vesper sands kind of didn't you know what i mean like right whatever whatever this this issue nine confrontation did while fizzling out and not giving me what i expected it still gave me like something i don't know Mm -hmm. if i can i can articulate it better than that but Uh, yeah and yeah it i i don't i don't know how to articulate it better either but like the the artwork um and just yeah i I do want to yes. talk more about the artwork. That might be more for At next episode. Point, yes, um, but uh, Tom King masters the the craft of comic book writing too. Like he knows because it is a visual right. uh, medium. It's not merely text, which merely text we can discuss <laughs> right. what that means. Um, but like there's there there there's the way the page right. is structured, and the the writer is usually very involved in what that page looks like. And so he does that. He does set up this potential climax, and he does it right. numerous times with the character of Abu Rahim. Um, it's at the end of part nine, uh, page two twenty-two. Um, you've got these four panels that go down. Where it's who are you? Who are you? Uh, and then Nasir says he is Abu Rahim because they're wondering. You know, they're waiting for Abu Rahim. Right. They're waiting for this showdown, so to speak. And waiting for him to come. And here's this guy. Who is he? And he's got a bomb strapped to his chest. Uh, and he says he is Abu Rahim. And then you see just Abu Rahim's face right in the middle of the last panel. Right. And he says, who else should I be? And so, like, it's set up. He's and With his, the look on his face, like, he feels like he's in control. And so it is this right. real showdown. Um, and then that repeats itself at the beginning of part 10, more or less, with a nine-panel spread um, on page 225. Um where he very uh, cockily says, now I am George Washington, and he's got that same smirk. And, like, the way it's structured, because it goes back and forth between Abu Rahim with Nasir and Sophia, uh, and then Christopher with Bob and the IT guy. Um, uh, Like, the way it goes back and forth like that, it allows itself to have these repeated sort of climaxes the Mm -hmm. same sort of way um that he he does that and he appears and he like has the same swagger but then it starts to focus away from him and uh and starts to fizzle because at the same time that you're seeing abu rahim um present himself as the villain as the main antagonist you're hearing more from bob and in this more casual way you're discovering oh there's a gray yeah. area here 
that uh, presents him more as the villain. And in fact, that gray area is presented in a flashback that's done in gray. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out because I was literally about to. Um... Yeah. <laughs> Which almost feels like two on the nose, but it somehow almost, works, I think. But yes, like, oh. Uh... Yeah, so that's um, yeah, it's it's a thing. Um, and then like, yeah. okay, so you you got that repeated sort of image of of him seem like seeming like he's in control, but then two sixty two, another nine panel spread, and it ends with the the last panel there. He's in the center again, but now like all of his confidence is gone. He's responding to Sophia and saying, "What? What? What?" <laughs> like so, that's where we're seeing the fizzle really really happening um right and all of this ends in part 11 with just a bunch of gunshots um right and then abu rahim is gone and we go back to where we started in part 12 more or less um, yeah right and then it goes kind of it, it kind of does in part 12 the reverse of part one um yeah it like rewinds sure. itself into yeah the conclusion yeah um i do want to point out i guess yeah i was trying to figure trying to decide like you've said a lot of things that are all very interesting and good uh said a lot and of things. a lot of the things i want to point out would probably take us well beyond our allotted time mm -hmm. um but I and you started and I guess this is going to be my my teaser for the next episode because like you've been delineating uh, a few of the times you said things about like oh two twenty five is nine panels long um, yep two sixty two is nine panels long uh, which is a very interesting I guess structural slash uh, narrative way to look at comics that has to do with the question of like whether comics are more like literature or more like film oh yeah um or whether that's like a you know uh uh i don't know like a false question like a like a question with with invalid premises or something um the one thing i want to point out specifically though is uh, on 225, that, that first nine-panel exchange that you pointed out, right in the middle of that nine-panel exchange, which is all uh, uh, Sophia, um, Abu Rahim, I forget Nasir. the third man's name. Nasir, thank you. There's a um, reason I remember their names. We'll get to that next episode. Yeah, I, I, I reckon that was going to happen at some point. Um, <laughs> but, like right in the middle of that uh in a technique i can only assume was borrowed from the early 2000s film mouse hunt where <laughs> uh the the dead patriarch um has a portrait that that he sort of looks down on nathan lane and whoever his antagonist uh, is i forget yeah but like the portrait changes in aspect periodically depending on mm -hmm. what's going on in the movie which is something they borrowed from earlier movies. I think Sullivan's Travels from 1941 has a similar little bit in it. Anyway, but like we have Avicenna or Avicenna or Avicenna, however you say his name, mm -hmm. 
Um, I have written papers about this man. I have n- never known how to say his name. <laughs> uh, who is set up, I think, in part nine as as uh, Nasir and Sophia are uh, yep. waiting for Abu-Rahim to appear. But um, he's just looking down on this conversation. And what I can only assume is disapproval of Abu-Rahim's choosing to uh, compare himself to George Washington yeah um, and it's just a master stroke of just like structurally in a page what you can do in a graphic novel that you almost couldn't do qu- at least quite the same way in a film or in a, a novel like mm-hmm. a standard novel um well and that's and that's, that's when i when i recognize the mastery of a medium or the craft is you could not do this in any other medium what you have done here is is using this medium only the way this medium can be used nothing else could do this right like um yeah absolutely i agree uh and like milan kundera who any of like seven to eleven of his works are ones I have considered bringing onto this podcast. Um, uh-huh. But he has a passage. I think it's in his novel Immortality, though the way that he writes novels, they're like hybrid with essays in the original sense of, of essays. Mm-hmm. But he basically asserts that in the age of the film, novels have to try to do what films can't do. Yeah. Um, and it feels like that's a really good example, this one we just talked about, of, like, a gra- like basically what I think we both just said, but of a graphic novel doing something a film or a, a novel couldn't do. Yep. Yep. Um, like, I feel like there's more to talk about that there, but I feel like we're also I, running yeah. up against our time, and uh, I don't want to launch us into any other 40-minute discussions. No, I, I think we should uh, we should pause there um, and and let that let that stand for for this episode. Um, so we'll we'll continue discussing the Sheriff of Babylon by Tom King, uh, art by Mitch Jarrods uh, next episode, uh, gentle listener. And we'll be uh, continuing at that point uh, to be drinking our Glenlivet Nadura. Uh, and we'll give our ratings then. Uh, but you can, in the meantime, contact us on the Tapestry Radio website, tapestryradio.org. Uh, put Scotch Talk in the subject line when you go to the contact section there. On Twitter, you can find us at Room with Scotch, or you can find us on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House if you request to join. Uh, we'll let you in unless you are more clearly the villain than any gray area would suggest. Sure. Uh, sure. We'll also do your homework uh, if you fill out the form at tapstradio.org slash scotchcast. It's up at the top of the page. Fill that out, and we'll we'll f- do your homework assignments. We don't promise to do them well, but we'll do them in a way that if you turn them in, uh, it'll be funny when you get hauled off to plagiarism jail. Um, and we'll, we, we fully endorse plagiarism on this podcast. Um, and if you enjoy this show, you can uh, check out the other shows on Tapestry Radio, such as Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the Actual Play Fiasco RPG, 
improv podcast. Freddy goes to a podcast where three grown men talk about the children's book series Freddy the Pig. Uh, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG podcast. Uh, and please give us uh, ratings and reviews uh, for this podcast and all the podcasts you love. Five stars is about right. Uh, and uh, we, we like looking at those those reviews. Uh, Ethan, where can they find you? Uh, I'm at Bjartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. I don't tweet very often, but I, if you want to get in touch, that's probably the best way. Mm-hmm. And I'm on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Uh, and what Ethan said also pretty much goes goes for me. Uh, and with that, until next time, just remember it's our party and we'll cry if we're hit by an RPG. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.